What's up? Welcome to The Shaleen Show. Today, we're talking about meat and other things. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. Welcome to The Shaleen Show. Shaleen is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. Specifically, we're going to be talking about grass-fed beef. Today, my host is Mike Salguero. He's the CEO and the founder of ButcherBox, the first delivery service dedicated to providing 100% natural, grass-fed beef, organic chicken, and heritage pork to consumers. Now, before I go much further, I have to say this. It's amazing, and it's the reason why I have Michael on the show today, because it has really had a profound effect on the health of myself and my family, as well as many people who have joined the 131 movement. But the idea for ButcherBox, well, I can't wait for you to hear the story from Michael himself, but I love that it was spawned from his own passion and also realizing that there's so many people, maybe just like you, who live in an area where you just don't have access to quality, grass-fed, grass-finished beef and animal protein that was raised humanely. Now, if you're a vegetarian, this is probably not your episode. But if you're a meat eater, if protein is an important part of your diet, a couple of things I want you to know before finishing this episode. Number one, we consume way too much animal protein in an American diet. That's a fact. Second fact is most of it, 98% is conventionally farmed animal products, which means these are animals that are raised in conditions that are, well, frankly, it's open to debate. And I know I'm going to make a lot of people angry, especially farmers. I love my farmers. I'm a Midwestern girl. I want you to do your own research. I want you to decide for yourself what's best for you. I can just tell you what I believe is best, and that is from an ethical standpoint and also from a micro and macronutrient standpoint, the quality of the meat and the way I feel about the way the animals are treated, it matters to me. If it doesn't matter to you, I ask you to do a little bit more research, that's all. Nonetheless, I think you're going to learn so much about the practices, the sometimes very shady practices of the food industry when it comes to food labeling. Now, before I bring Michael onto the show, I want to make you aware of a very special, cool opportunity that Michael and his team put together for us. If you are one of those people that doesn't live next to a Whole Foods, doesn't have access to high quality animal products, and you're interested in sampling your own butcher box, you are entitled to $20 off with this promotion plus free bacon. Who doesn't love free bacon? All you do is go to butcherbox.com forward slash Shaleen to take advantage of this offer. It's something that we've been doing now for over a year, almost a year and a half. My son Brock is a collegiate athlete, is a football player, and he actually has ButcherBox delivered to his home. And to be honest, once you try ButcherBox meats, you'll never go back. When I say you can taste a difference, I mean you can really taste a difference. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm, I'm just telling you it is well worth the investment in your health. All right, without further ado, off to the interview. Michael, thank you so much for being here today on The Shaleen Show. Thanks for having me. I get so many messages from people unsolicited who are customers of ButcherBox. They've discovered ButcherBox through our program, 131. And I have to tell you, they rave about a lot of things. What's really important to me is A, customer service, 
right? Because I don't recommend anything unless my family uses it. We love it. We, we've done our research because, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't have your integrity, what do you have? So it's really important to me to hear such people just rave about the quality of what it is they're eating and also how great your customer care is at ButcherBox. So hats off. Yeah, thank you. That's great to hear. We've worked really hard on customer care. So that's great to hear. I want to take this opportunity to start by asking what the term grass-fed beef, because that's all the rage. And I hear people throwing that term around, and I'm wondering how it has evolved since its inception and what it actually means today. Sure. Yeah. So let me just give you, your listeners, a little bit of background on how a cow is produced currently. So Mm -hmm. the first six months of a cow's life is cow-calf, and this is any cow. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's basically the cow feeding off its mother. Mm -hmm. Then the next year is basically cow on open pasture, just eating grass and hanging out. And then at 18 months, can be up to 22-ish months, that's where most of the cows, 98% in the United States, go to a conventional feedlot where they're fed a diet of corn for corn, soy, other grains for about four to six months before ultimately getting slaughtered. Mm -hmm. So grass-fed is same 18 months, but then at the 18-month mark, instead of going to a feedlot, they just keep eating grass and generally do that for another year or so before being sent. So can I ask about those first 18 months? Is there any, that seems like a great standard of care for the animal. Yep. Are there any advantages? Are there other countries? Are there other standards by which the cow would be in any other situation, meaning that they're eating grains prior to 18 months? I am sure that there are people playing around with that, but for mm-hmm. the most part, that's not, that's not usually how it works. Certainly not. And is that because of a standard or is that because of the viability of the animal? It actually completely depends on the price of cattle on that day. So sometimes if cattle are expensive, farmers might take them off at 12 months. It's really like ah. it's a fluid market, always different pricing. But on average, that's a 18-month kind of holding period. And I think that's mostly so that they're of a size where they then can put on a ton of weight really quickly. So the the corn is a little bit more efficient at that point. And packing on the pounds. Yes, exactly. Much the same way it's very efficient to pack on the pounds for humans. <laughs> it is it is quite an amazing, quite an amazing uh, substance, that corn. So let's talk about that for a second, because I don't know that I understood this not too many years ago. What do I care what the cow's eating? Until I started realizing what impact it was having on my body to eat these grains and GMO corn. And maybe even if it's not GMO corn, just what effect it was having on my body to eat foods that my ancestors didn't eat, that my body, I might have recognized it on the shelf, but my body doesn't recognize it. And that's what kind of led me to to find ButcherBox was to once I realized what impact it had on me, realizing that I was now eating meat that was eating food that was likely inflammatory, right, to the right. animal. And right. so why is it that that grains and corn, et cetera, are inflammatory or are they inflammatory and why are we feeding them to our animals? We're feeding them to our animals because in the 1950s, it was basically discovered that if you were to administer antibiotics to an animal and feed it 
massive amounts of grains, you could put a ton of weight on an animal very cheaply. And this is after the war. People were very focused, and still really today, are very, the, the masses are focused on cheap meat. Eating meat, but having it be incredibly, incredibly cheap. So the industry's response to that was, how do we put as much weight as possible, as fast as possible on an animal, rather than how do we do things the right way in a way that's best for their stomach, their gut, their what have you. Cow stomach is different than a human stomach, um, and it doesn't process grain well. So it tends to, as you said, there's inflammation concerns, there's uh, issues with health, overall health of the animal. They're in Typically, when they go to a, a feedlot, it's a very confined space. So there's lots of other cows around. It's a stressful environment. Basically, everything about it is just a stressful, inflammatory type of environment. And because of that, I think things have, have gotten a little bit better, but it's, it's still always thinking about how to put more weight on the frame and how to, um, how to, how to get the cheapest product possible to the, to the consumer. Yeah, so we're talking about money and marketing when it comes to how our food is labeled, you said that the first 12 to 18 months of just about any cow's life is virtually grass-fed. Yep. If I'm a farmer and I am grass-feeding my animal up until age, say, 12 months, and then I put that animal on a, a feedlot and feed it grain, can I still call it grass-fed? No. So where you'll see your first marketing misinformation is something called grass-fed grain finished mm. where it's that's basically every other cow it's just a fancy way of saying we finished it on grain but everyone's doing that if they're not if they're not feeding the animal grass its entire life that's every other cow is what you're saying correct okay correct yep huh. so there are lots of labels out there that'll say grass-fed grain it'll say grass-fed big and then grain finished small and it's like well, that's mm -hmm. actually just regular wow. meat wow wow yeah so like there, there's these restaurants where I see restaurants that are now they say we serve grass fed beef. So is it possible they're serving grass fed beef that's been finished on grain? Well, restaurants is really interesting because restaurants, there's actually no regulation whatsoever. Oh. There's no inspection of restaurants. There's like you literally a restaurant can say anything they want and wow. they do. Wow. A new one that I've seen recently is um, pasture fed mm -hmm. where it because pasture raised is generally means an animal was fed grass um, oh. or it was on a pasture its whole life. Pasture fed is it was on a pasture, but it was fed grains. Oh, wow. And then going back to your question about grass feds, grass fed traditionally meant the animal ate grass. Um, you'd be surprised at how much that's changed. So what first happened was the people in New England or northern states complained that designation of it needs to be grass hurt their business because if you're a cow in Vermont, you can't really eat grass during the winter because there's a foot of snow on the ground. Sure. So it was like, we need hay, we need silage, we need all this other stuff to be included to allow us to feed the animals through the winter. Makes sense. But then what people have done is they've kind of taken that and they've turned it into a very broad definition of what's considered grass. So for example, corn husks are considered grass. R really? And there's no differentiating that on our labeling? Nope. So a grass-fed cow can have been fed in a feedlot and can have been fed a pellet. Some people are trying to create grass-fed pellets that mm. make the cow really fat, but are in a pellet form. Can have been fed a cocktail of grasses and corn husks and 
a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's what a lot of the players in the grass-fed industry are doing in the United States. Can you tell us what is a feedlot and why do feedlots exist? Sure. So a feedlot is a confined feeding operation. So it's basically a huge, huge area with a trough down the middle that somebody can drive a truck or a tractor and just put more grain into the trough. And then you've just got cows on all sides just eating the grain. So the largest ones have about 700,000 head at any given time. And are they freestanding? Yeah, they're freestanding. But they're they're confined. It's a small space. It's uh, a lot of a lot of other animals. It's very stressful. It's just not a... They're not in the middle of a pasture. They're actually no. in, in, a, in a dirt lot right, where exactly. they're confined. Okay. And why do we have feedlots? I mean, is it because we have an ever-growing population and an ever-increasing demand for animal protein? Well, it's also the obsession with cheap meat. Mm. And also, this country, there's not really a, a lot of land to be able to run animals on. So there's certainly... Midwest is, is full of land, but traditionally, a feedlot, you can feed a lot more animals on a lot less land, mm-hmm. right? Because you're just pumping that corn in. You just brought up a really good point, and that's the sustainability. Is it even reasonable? I hear this debate often, and there's so many different documentaries out there. Okay, side note, I am recording this after my interview with Michael, and that is because I didn't have a chance to kind of explain what I meant when I referred to the fact that there's a lot of controversial documentaries out there. So I just want to say this before I go much further. I want those of you who watch these documentaries to pay attention to the dates of the science or lack thereof that's referenced in these documentaries. Think about who the filmmaker is and what their agenda is. Because just because something's a documentary, it's it's just like saying, well, I saw that on TV, so therefore it must be true. I saw it on TMZ or I saw it on the internet, therefore it must be factual. Not necessarily so. And I know there's one documentary in particular that I get messages about every single day. Okay, let's just call it what it is. What the health. And there's an agenda behind the documentary. And I don't want to pick this documentary apart piece by piece because there's, without question, validity to many of the things covered in the documentary. But to be perfectly clear, they are talking about conventional animal meat in that movie. They are not referring to grass-fed and grass-finished meat. And we speak extensively with tons of research that you can actually look at yourself. And we clearly define who the research was conducted by, the dates of it. But we have got tons of research for you to evaluate the different qualities of meat based on how the animals are raised and the foods that the animals are eating, because it really matters. And we break that all down inside the 131. I'm just going to tell you personally, for me, and I want everyone to make their own decision, I no longer eat deli meats. I no longer eat conventional cheap protein. I eat very little protein. My diet is primarily plant-based, but I phase my diet. So there is a period of time where I do tend to eat a little bit more animal protein, and then I phase my diet again, and I eat very little animal protein, very little. I think we need to reevaluate how it is we're evaluating meat. It's, as you'll hear in this interview, the way that animal meat and protein is now being farmed, has had a tremendous impact on our overall health and the micronutrient quality of the animal protein. And it can be 
very inflammatory. I also want to say there's a lot of things in the documentary that I agree with, and I think they underrepresented. For example, the people at the end of the film who've had these most astonishing, remarkable recoveries, and they feel so great, and they suddenly look different. They're like, look at me, I'm I'm the walking picture of health. They didn't mention that each of those participants also followed a fasting protocol. A fasting protocol very similar to one that's an option in the 131 method. So there's a lot of the film that I agree with. And then there's a lot of the film that I just know the data and the research that they've decided to present. And even some of the footage that they're showing has been very cherry picked. There's a big difference between seeing a conventional farm where there's just massive amounts of animals packed into a feedlot and the way that they're treated. It's it's horrific. I mean, you can hardly not watch this documentary and and ever think that you're going to eat a piece of meat again. I'm just suggesting that there's a lot of great documentaries out there. If I could just recommend one that I think is walks the line right down the middle, I would suggest that you watch At the Fork. Don't forget it. At the Fork. Okay, back to the interview with Michael. Is it even viable to think that we could be producing the amount of meat that our country is consuming right now and do so without the use of feedlots. Producing it domestically or producing it? Yes, domestically. I think it would be, but it would definitely take a large change in terms of who owns the land and, you know, mm-hmm. how to do things. Like, for example, there's a there's a ton of federal land in Nevada mm-hmm. that some people are allowed to raise cattle on, but it's such a tiny, tiny fraction of people that are able to be out there. I think there are ways to do it. But it's unlikely to change. The whole system is actually built around selling these cows to feedlots. It's really interesting. So I've spent lots of time, obviously, with like farmers and and whatnot. And um, enlighten us. Well, so in a lot of cases, let's say the farmer decides after eighteen months that they want to keep the cow. Like you know what? I'm just going to keep these cows and sell them at the local market for grass-fed beef. In a lot of cases, their loans are due after eighteen months. So typically, a farmer gets a loan for a cow, buys a cow as a calf, raises it for that year and a half, and then at the 18-month mark, maybe at 20 months, their loan is due to the bank. Mm -hmm. So unless they have very deep pockets, they really have no way of affording it. Mm -hmm. Like Even if they wanted to, they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So enter in all these, what's happening now is there's some grass finishing operations out there. So right at the point where they'd be selling to a feedlot and they're saying, hey, sell to me, I'll finish it on my property for the next year on grass. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, you know, it's fascinating. And I think as we grow a bigger market for people that are looking for this, there are ways to take the dollars from our customers directly to the farmer rather than all these different layers that we're mm. um, you know that that's cur- currently causing people to have to make a decision that isn't necessarily the best. You know, not everybody lives in an area where they have access even to grass-fed or grass-finished beef. And, I mean, you're obviously providing a solution there. Yep. You know, we've got a Whole Foods down the street. And when I go to Whole Foods, they've got a labeling system where, based on the number, you kind of know the standard or quality of that meat. There's, uh, I forget what the number is, but it represents the fact that this animal was raised and spend its entire life on one farm. And every single time, I, at least the Whole Foods by my house, every time I, I go, I always look at that case and there's there's never any meat 
under yeah. that number. Like, is that a really rare thing now for animals to be raised on one farm? Uh, yeah, unless it's a, a fairly small farm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is people are specialists in certain areas. Mm -hmm. So cow calf, so calving. I see. Yeah, that's like a whole, that's a whole thing, right? So it's not, so somebody becomes an expert at like making sure that the calf is safe, making sure the mom takes care of the calf, making sure that they're healthy, like all that. Mm. And so that's a six month specialization that some people, they, they run a couple herds at a time at different points in the year. And that's like what they do. And then the second piece, the yearling stage, the six months to 18 months, that's somebody else who does that. So there are people who, you know, calve all the way through, pharaoh to finish as they call it, but mm -hmm. it's actually rare and pretty inefficient. You know, you can't be an expert in everything. So it's, Got it's, it. it's hard. It's, it's likely better for the animal because it's on one place, doesn't have to move, et cetera. But, you know, you could also make the argument that, being with experts in those areas would be better. So is that a question that you think that some people have and it's with regard to the ethics or do you think that it changes the quality of the meat for an animal to not be, just to have one less day of stress, but maybe it's not one day, maybe it's more than that, maybe I'm understating it, but to be moved from one farm to another farm is the idea that that stress induces a response in the animal that affects the quality of the meat? I don't know. So stress definitely destroys the quality of meat at the point of slaughter or right before. But I don't know about like a year before if they were stressed out what that. I mm -hmm. think it's more about the ethics behind making sure that the, you know, at, at the end of the day, another living being is giving their life for you. And that is something that should be taken with the amount of respect that it deserves, right? So it's a God's creature and that deserves respect. So I think it's more a, how do we do what's right for all parties here or for the animal in that particular case, rather than, rather than like, is, does this taste better? How did you establish the ethical standards that are the guiding principle at ButcherBox and have they changed as you've learned more or as the industry has evolved? For sure. They've gotten a lot more stringent as we've gone on. Mm. Yeah. So when we started, we were, we, we were looking for grass fed and what we realized pretty quickly was that grass-fed did not always mean on an open pasture just eating grazily and grazing lazily. <laughs> and so there was a time uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, where we actually moved a bunch of our production to Australia because Australia has one of the best pasture-raised programs in the world. And we got to just like press reset, start getting our stuff at a place that actually does the right things and then start moving some more and more of it back domestically. So there it was about first looking at the quality and realizing you just didn't have the supply chain here yep. to meet your demand. Is that accurate? Yep, absolutely. Wow. Is that changing? Is it shifting? It is. It is. There are a few larger companies that have, or really investment houses, family investment offices that have uh, made big, big bets in the United States. And we're really part of that because what we do now is we're able to give the farmer a lot more reliability because we have monthly subscribers and we understand yes. how many are going to stay and how many are going to leave. And we're also frozen. So the shot clock that you have to make sure that you get that meat to somebody is a lot longer than like a fresh meat in the case. Well, let's talk about frozen fresh for a moment if we yeah. can. Yeah. Because I, I assume that there are people who are like, well, gosh, if I'm buying fresh meat from my local butcher, even if it's not grass finished, isn't that better than buying 
something that's shipped to me frozen? What, how does it affect the, the quality of the meat and, and also pricing? I actually think the taste is way better frozen grass-fed because when it freezes, it definitely softens the structure. And I think at, at, for grass-fed in particular, it, it, does, it does really well. Frozen is good for a few reasons. One, what we do is we send you pre-portioned meat, so a 10-ounce ribeye or a pound of ground beef. And so you can pull it out slowly over time. You're not going to get 10 pounds of meat that you have to then eat in the weekend before it goes bad. Very true, very true. So it's very convenient and also for like meal planning, for eating the right amount of meat, etc. It makes it a little easier for the customer. Also, one of the big problems in the meat industry right now is uh, what they call balance, balancing. So if you think about it, even at your Whole Foods, if you go and look for grass-fed today, there's probably ribeyes, New York strips, and tenderloins, and ground beef, and that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. They're not carrying brisket. They're not carrying a chuck roast. They're not carrying a culotte. They're not carrying all this other stuff that tastes amazing. Customer is like would love to receive. They just don't have the variety in the in the local store. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because they have to take the risk that you're actually going to purchase that. Mm. So the way that the industry has been brought up is they take out what's called the middle meat, which is the strip ribeye tenderloin, which, by the way, is a tiny, tiny piece of like the entire animal. Okay. Um, and then basically grind everything else or mm. sell it in, into the conventional market. Okay. And what that does is it causes prices to be artificially high because, you know, there's all this other all these other cuts that are being ground up into ground beef. So you end up with $8, $9 pound ground beef and $24 pound, you know, tenderloins. And it, it continues to be inaccessible to most people mm-hmm. versus what we do where we balance the whole animal, we're, we're buying everything, we're, we're not giving people stuff they don't, they're not familiar with, but we, we make it fun to learn how to cook it and work with different types of product that you couldn't buy elsewhere. And because of that, we represent a real opportunity for the farmer because they can get more money for their meat. Uh, we represent an opportunity for the processing facilities because they don't have to grind everything. And for the customer because they can get stuff that they literally can't get anywhere else. None of that we could we could do if we weren't in a frozen environment. The animal you said is much smaller. And by that, do you mean that an animal that is grass finished doesn't put on as much weight and therefore oh, yeah. it's going to be more expensive to raise it number one and number two you're getting if we're buying meat by the pound right that's where this notion that grass-fed grass-finished beef is much more expensive well it's much more expensive for a few reasons one is that retailers can charge more so they are mm. like there's no there's no one out there like us trying to really drive down prices and like you know help people to afford it and driving up quality and pricing. I think we're we're early in that, but that that's one big reason. The other big reason is it's incredibly inefficient because it's, it's such a small portion of the industry. It's somewhere between mm. 2 and 3% of all the beef consumed in the United States is grass-fed. Just 2 to 3%? Yeah. So the other 98% of meat that's being consumed in the United States is considered conventional or grain Correct. finished. Yep. Wow, wow, wow. Right? Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. Has that grown since you got into this business? Uh, yeah, grass-fed is growing at like 75 to 100% year over year. So Dang. that's good. Yeah. So when someone is in an area where they don't have access to grass-fed, grass-finished beef, and you're that source for them, are you shipping anywhere in the United States? Uh, yeah, we don't ship to Alaska and Hawaii yet. 
we are still trying to figure out how to do that. But uh-huh. um, every everywhere else we do, every other corner of the the lower forty eight states we do. How do you handle? Because I assume from a business standpoint, I have to ask this question: What happens when you know you ship the goods to someone's home and they forgot and they yeah. show up a day later? You know, how long does that meat stay cold? Do they come back to you? Like, is that just a loss of business? How is that handled? Yeah. So generally our stuff, I mean, it it depends on where, you know, if it's in the Arizona desert, it's going to be a little tough, but uh, Mm -hmm. generally our stuff lasts an extra 18 to 24 hours, depending. If it lands on my doorstep, I've got about 18 to 24 hours. You said to get it in my freezer. Exactly. Depending. Wow. Wow. Sure. in the event that, so if, if you open the box, it's still, it could still be frozen or at the very least cold to the touch. We are 100% satisfaction guarantee, so we just replace the box. I would never want to put a customer in a position where, one, they spent money on on this meat and are like, what? Like, I lose all this money? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, or two, where they decide to make an unhealthy mm-hmm. eating decision. Like, yeah. uh, I think this is this is good for me. Like, I, I don't want people making that decision. I just prefer to replace it. So we, uh, you know, they reach out to support a butcher box and we send them a box immediately. I think people are pretty familiar with the box model. You know, I have friends who subscribe to box models where they receive makeup or, you know, a couple of books, whatever. I think it's, I would assume that there's some I don't know, liability, if you will, when you're shipping a box of consumables and you personally haven't produced those consumables, how does ButcherBox protect themselves and also protect their customer by doing some type of quality assurance? How do you guarantee that you're sending and shipping and working with people who are reputable and care about not just your reputation, but your customer's health? Yeah. So as a food company, the number one concern is obviously getting someone sick. And as a meat company, I think that's a heightened concern. So we do everything within our power to make sure that we're providing the customer the best possible product that we've done the most rigorous testing possible for. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, we have uh, pretty strict QA and QC procedures, as well as um, a recall plan, which Fortunately, we've never used, but, you know, in the event that we found somebody who got sick, we can go down to every single person who received that product and and let them know that they need to uh, dispose of it. All of our facilities are USDA inspected, uh, inspector on, on site all the time. So they're doing tests. E. coli is the big one, but they're doing tests for a whole bunch of other pathogens, other things that would be not good for people to eat. And then we send recipes. We try to teach people early on in their experience with us how to cook well, how to cook a, the product all the way through, and so it can be as safe as possible for people and their family. Well, we've talked a lot about beef, and I know that we, you know, our family, obviously, we're big fans, and there's a huge, I'm not even joking, a huge difference in the taste and the quality when you've got good meat. Like, wow, that's something I've really been astonished by. And then when we have friends over and they're like, this is unbelievable. Brett, what did you put in it? How, how have you seasoned this? And it's just a completely different experience. But we also get bacon from you and pork. Can you explain to our listener the difference between heritage breed pork and conventional pork? Basically, back in the 80s, when everyone was against fat, Mm -hmm. the pork industry came out with their pork, the other white meat campaign, which was all about how pork was lean, 
like chicken. In order to execute on that, the pork breeders continue to breed and breed and breed fat out of the pigs so that they're very lean. So some people I talk to who may have not had a pork chop in 10 years remember the dry pork chop that you have to like douse in applesauce because it's so dry. Um, <laughs> yeah, wasn't that a Brady Bunch episode? Yeah, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> definitely an episode in my house probably once a week. Um, yeah. So that's changed. I mean, so what, what we do is we use heritage breeds, meaning old old world breeds or breeds before the fat was, was bred out of the pig. A, a much better eating experience. It's uh, more marbled. It's uh, more tender. It's... Um, Really, our, our pork is amazing. And how are those animals being raised? So our pork is pasture-raised. So it's raised in pasture, much like the cows. They do have mm-hmm. um, places to go. They, they tend to like sleep in huts at night, but they are pasture-raised. And what's really important for pork, but is actually true of all of our program, is humane certification. Mm. We're certified humane on all of our pork. Pigs, just a short detour on pigs. Back in the day, like let's say, I don't know, 100 AD, the cows would be out on a field eating like away from the village, but the pigs were always in the village and they were eating trash or eating like scraps or mm-hmm. so they're always like close to humans. Mm-hmm. And because of that, pigs over time have, they tend to be the science project. If you're going to dissect something, it's a fetal pig because its mm-hmm. organs look like a human's. Mm-hmm. It has teeth that look like a human's. Humane treatment is important for all animals, but certainly on pork, it's incredibly important. Talk about a difficult challenge for the average consumer to try to find heritage breed pork. I mean, if you think Mm -hmm. finding beef that's been grass-fed, grass-finished is difficult, try finding heritage breed pork, and wow, what a difference. And, and, you know, I think, I just want to state this, I'm happy to hear your opinion on it, but I often will hear people say that, Shalene, I'm on a budget. I've got to feed a family. I can't afford expensive meat. To which I always say, I believe, been taught that we need to consume animal protein at every single meal. And if you actually understood what your body truly needs and how you should be phasing your diet, you'd understand that it's far more important that you're getting a higher quality of meat and perhaps eating less. So in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to cost you more money. It's in fact, it's going to cost you more in terms of your health if you're not paying attention to, you know, the micronutrients of the food that you're eating. Totally agree. Couldn't agree more. And then the last question I have for you about, um, and this is just a personal question. It's really just very yeah. self-serving. But do you offer or do you plan to offer ground chicken or ground turkey in the future? Yeah, we are in the process of doing ground turkey. And we, are, we haven't done ground chicken yet. But uh, mm-hmm. we're looking at our whole chicken program right now and trying to, you know, trying to get more claims, get a, better, get a better product to the customer. So certainly we'll look into that. But ground turkey is like, uh, I think, a month out. That's awesome. Well, make sure we're on that beta list. Okay, <laughs> will do. Well, it has been a pleasure to have you here today, Michael. I am very happy to be able to introduce you to my audience. I think that what you're doing by making quality meats not only affordable, but accessible. And for you to be the company that you take that difficult step for a lot of people, you've made it easier for them to provide a legacy of health to their family. And I I just want to commend you for what you guys are doing at ButcherBox. Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate coming on your show and being able to uh, talk to your audience about our, our product and uh, what we're trying to do here. Awesome. And we have a special gift for listeners of The Shaleen Show. So you will go to ButcherBox. 
com forward slash Shaleen. And there you'll receive $20 off your first box plus free bacon. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, you just go to that page and then you can choose different box types. We have a curated approach, which you can choose beef, chicken, pork, or any of the any combination. Mm-hmm. Or the custom approach where you get to choose exactly what you uh, want to come. I love it. Michael, thank you so much for being a guest here of The Shaleen Show. Thank you. Okay, hang on. Before you go anywhere, I just want to take a moment and just let you know how much I appreciate you. I mean, I really am grateful for the support that you show me here on The Shaleen Show. And I want to thank you for supporting the guests that I've had on the show. And thanks for checking out the 131movement.com. And because it is a movement, and it's something that I'm obviously incredibly passionate about. And it's also the reason why I don't put ads in my podcast. Now, I mean, at least today I don't. And I guess I can't make you a promise that I'll never put ads in my podcast. But for right now, I can tell you I have no intentions of doing that because my objective is to serve you and to suggest things to you that I think are really valuable. So whenever I do that, I just want you to know that I'm comfortable placing my name in association with things that I recommend. And it's my integrity that's on the line. And it's my trust that is able to stay intact. And that's why I'm I'm obviously most comfortable recommending things that I've created to help you live a happier, healthier, fuller life. A lot healthier. I want you to have that kind of life. It is why I want to encourage you to take a moment to check out 131movement.com. And by the way, if you found this interview today interesting or very interesting, which I hope you did, Michael, I have to tell you, is a fascinating character beyond even what you heard today. So he is a very successful businessman who basically walked away from a $40 million venture capital company to pursue his passion. And that story he tells in detail in an episode that is soon to be released on Build Your Tribe. Of course, depending upon when you're listening to this one, that episode on Build Your Tribe will be released episode number 224. Episode 224, it should pop up or just head over there on whatever podcasting app that you're listening to. And hey, can I suggest that you subscribe to Build Your Tribe? especially if you're the kind of person who could use a little extra money. That's what it's about. And who couldn't use a little extra money? All right, that is all for today. But I love you. And I thank you. I thank you so much for spending this time with me. You are the bomb.com. And I get so excited about spending this time with you. I can't wait to do it again. And until then, be well.